0: While the choir is sitting down, um, we just sang that hymn 621. You should read it again. If you have a copy of the hymn book at home, read the words or Google the words. Don't do it during the sermon. Uh, John Cooper, who wrote this, or William Cooper, who wrote this, was a friend of John Newton's. And uh, from what we can tell, he probably suffered from a very severe form of of bipolar illness and spent most of his time in utter misery and the most terrible depression and suicidal thoughts and desperate fear that he did not know the Lord and it's out of that agony really of his experience that he wrote this particular song and I think you see something of it in the very words sometimes a light surprises the Christian as he sings it is the Lord who rises and uh, I hope that you have a more consistent sense of the light of God dawning on you than dear William Cooper had in his life well we come this evening back to John chapter 10 and the issue that is being addressed here is the issue of leadership. It was the middle of the Second World War. Uh, my uncle Willie had, uh, had uh, signed or had gone down to, to join up with the armed forces and had been rejected. They discovered that his eyesight was very severely bad. He never realized how bad it was and they rejected him for the armed services so they gave him another job uh, that was uh, kind of forces related he was uh, he was for a short time uh, uh, an operator a telephone operator in the olden days when you had telephone operators and had to be joined that the operator had to join your call to whatever the destination was I, I can't remember it but some of you look old enough to remember telephone operators and uh, One night, one night, he was working in central London. He got a phone call from this lady with a very posh, very posh English accent, who said to him, could you put me through to 10 Downing Street? That's the prime minister's residence. He said, no, I'm afraid that I I can't put you through to 10 Downing Street. I've been told that there'll be lots of prank callers and I'm not allowed to put you through to 10 Downing Street. The lady insisted, she said, don't you know that I'm Mr. Churchill's private secretary and he needs to be connected to 10 Downing Street. My uncle said, no, I've been warned very seriously. I was given a great warning about not allowing anyone to get through to 10 Downing Street. I'm sorry, I can't can't do that. Well, she said, you know, the prime minister wants to talk to his wife. He's away from home. He's in another country that I can't name. And he wants to speak to his wife. my uncle Willie insisted that he could not disturb the prime minister. There was a pause on the other end of the line. And a voice that is still familiar to the world came on to the phone. Young man... Young man, I'm so gratified that you are trying to protect me from pranksters, but I do want to speak to my wife, young man. Would you please connect me to 10 Downing Street? Well, there was a story, wasn't there? And it was uh, the reason I tell the story is because there are few figures, aren't there, in the history of the world who give the kind of leadership that a nation or a people need at a time of distress there's good there are good leaders there are bad leaders there are true leaders there are false leaders and that was true in the history of Israel it was true particularly in the history of the church of God throughout Israel's experience as well as in the period of the church today one of the great prophets who addressed this was Ezekiel and uh, at the end of Ezekiel chapter 37 God is predicting, he is predicting through the prophet, what was going to come in the future. God has noted that throughout her history, Israel has been badly served by her kings and religious leaders, her kings particularly. The outstanding king in their history was King David. He was a flawed leader, but he was a leader, and he was a leader after God's own heart. And he becomes the model, he becomes the kind of template of what leadership should look like. And God predicts, He promises, that in the future there will come a figure like David, but greater than David. And uh, here's what the prophet says My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, And they'll walk according to my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And they'll dwell in the land. And my dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. And my sanctuary is in her midst forevermore. That prophecy is a prophecy of the church church. Today it is a prophecy of the future that is fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. The sanctuary, the place where God dwells today on earth is in his church among his people. We are living stones being built into a holy temple in the Lord and God is present amongst us by his people, by his spirit. And the Lord is sanctifying his church, setting it apart from the world for his own. And the church has one leader, one great high priest, one great bishop and overseer of our souls, one great shepherd of the sheep. And it's here in John chapter 10 that Jesus makes his claim clear to be the shepherd of the sheep of the sheep. And he distinguishes humanity and the various flocks of humanity. He distinguishes among all of humanity his own people, his own flock, those that bear his name, that hear his voice, that receive his teaching, that commit their way to him by recognizing the truth that comes through him. In verse 5, for example, we looked at this last time. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Those who are Jesus' sheep hear Jesus' voice, recognize Jesus' teaching, and they follow him. They may go through periods of doubt or anxiety or questioning. They may even lapse into disobedience or even into false teaching for a while or into evil but they will return to their first love the perseverance of the saints indicates that they will return to their first love so that's the very first thing that we find as we read the opening part of John chapter 10 Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep and the second thing the chapter teaches is from verse 7 That Jesus is the security of his sheep. In verse 7, he changes the metaphor to make a further point. Once again, he uses the formula that he's used many times before. Uh, Jesus says, truly, truly, amen, amen in the Greek. I say to you. He is heightening the importance of what he is about to say by adding this repetition that gets our attention and that that makes it very clear to us that what he is about to say is truth, absolute truth. Truly, truly, amen, amen, so be it, so be it. Verily, verily, hear, hear what I'm going to say. This is something that you can depend on and believe in. Here's what he's saying, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now he's been contrasting himself already in this chapter, way back in verse 1, with uh, the thieves that want to break in and steal the sheep. That is, take them away in their direction rather than them staying with their shepherd. There are people like that. Jesus is saying here, as he contrasts himself against the unworthy and the thieves, he says with great authority, not only that he is the great shepherd sent by God to shepherd the people of God, but once again he uses this exclusive, absolute language about himself. I am, he says, proclaiming his unique significance. In the whole story of redemption, Jesus stands unique. Here he is coming, as it were, in his uniqueness to be the main act in the drama of redemption. And he says, I am the door. And later on he will say, I am the good shepherd. He is revealing himself, in other words, as the one through whom this great work of salvation history, that is the story of God's dealings with humanity to bring people into a relationship with Himself. He is saying that in that long story of redemption, He is the key figure. He is the one through whom God accomplishes this work of bringing people to God. It finds that plan of salvation, finds its focus, its concentration in Him and he represents the key player, both in the side of God as shepherd and of Israel as his flock. In the ancient world, the stone wall that surrounded the fold that was the sheepfold uh, had usually only one entrance, and sometimes the shepherd would lie, would sleep across the doorway of the sheepfold To ensure their safety no one could come in or go out without encountering him and so Jesus is stressing the security of the sheep look at it again I am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture so what is he saying he is the door he is the entry point by which his sheep that is those who belong to him Come into the safety of God's presence and enjoy God's blessing. The language he's using is taken from the Old Testament. Jesus bathes his language in the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 118, for example, verse 20 says, This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. And when you enter it, when you come to the Lord through Jesus, when you enter into this great field of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, you discover salvation in its fullness. They will go in and out and find pasture. There is freedom, there is movement, there is plenty in this relationship. There is security, safety and enjoyment I remember a little tract that used to be handed out when I was a little boy, and those were the words on it. I never read the tract, but I saw those words on the outside page. Safety, security, enjoyment. That's what the Lord Jesus delivers to his people. And even those words, go in and out and find pasture, they're a kind of form word, phrase. It's a formal phrase. You, you find it in Deuteronomy, for example, where it describes the, the freedom and the fullness that there is when you're in the will of God and you're under the protection of God. And that's what Jesus is saying, that those who come to him enjoy the liberty and the freedom and the fullness of being under the protection of God and being in the will of God and having God's blessing in their lives. It's reminiscent also of the picture of Joshua. Uh, Yeshua, Joshua, of course, is is Jesus in, in Greek, isn't it? Jesus in Greek. Yeshua in Hebrew Joshua is our anglicization of it and Joshua is the one who leads the people of God into the promised land where they settle and they have rich abundance and that picture too is picked up in the Old Testament the pasture for example is God's provision for his own covenant people so in Psalm 23, that we sing regularly at our evening communion service. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That is, I will never be without. Because he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He provides for me. He feeds me. He satisfies me. He gives me enjoyment. Is what the psalmist is saying. Or again, in Psalm 71 and Psalm 79 and Psalm 100, God's people are described as the sheep of his pasture. They are his sheep and he provides pasture for them. He provides for their needs. He he gives them all that, he supplies all that they need in their lives. And this pasture word has another meaning in the Old Testament as well. It means also the restoration work that the Messiah would do when he came And you can read about that in Isaiah 49 and in Ezekiel 34. And so when it says, you see, that those who come to Jesus will go in and out and find pasture, those who come to Jesus find true freedom, they find true security, they find maximum provision for their daily needs. Let me read to you again these words. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you In a day of salvation I have helped you I will keep you And I will give you as a covenant to the people To establish the land And to apportion out the desolate heritages They shall feed along the ways On the bare heights shall be their pasture They shall not hunger or thirst Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them For he who has pity on them will lead them And by springs of water will guide them. It's a picture of our relationship with God in which he is the leader. He is the guide. He is the one whom we follow because we can depend upon him. He is the one who makes provision for his people. So that his people are sustained throughout this their earthly life and pilgrimage. And brought safely home to pleasures forevermore. That's what Jesus is claiming to be and to do. I am the gate of the sheep. Those who come to me will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. They will be saved. That is, salvation is a present possession. We don't have it yet in all its fullness, but we have it presently. We can say, I have been saved. I am being saved. I shall be saved. It's a full and blessed privilege. And of course Jesus has his competitors. Look at what he goes on to say. All those who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. The thief comes only to kill and to steal and destroy. And you notice that... The thieves and robbers are characterized by this. What they say leads to the killing, stealing, or destroying of the sheep. Because Jesus says about His sheep, they do not listen. They do not listen to thieves and robbers. So there are different kinds of enemies for the flock of God. These may be religious leaders. I think they're religious leaders primarily that Jesus has in mind here. These people have a tendency to use the flock and abuse the flock, either by lording it over the flock or not feeding the flock, or using the flock to their own ends. I would like a $63 million private aircraft. I think that would be a claim, wouldn't it? That would be something. There is someone, as you know, if you've been reading your Facebook pages, who has been making that appeal to his congregation. He wants a $63 million aircraft for ministry purposes. There are religious leaders who use and abuse the flock for their own ends. Some offer life but bring death. Some promise truth but spawn error. Some proclaim hope but breed despair. There is no security in religious leaders who have not come to Christ themselves, who don't believe the scriptures Jesus believed in themselves, who don't preach the things Jesus preached themselves, and who introduce destructive teaching. Jesus, or, or Paul rather, calls it in 1st uh, Timothy, doctrines of demons to deceive the flock of God to destroy the church of God to lead people away from the truth as it is in Jesus the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly Jesus comes not only to give eternal life now not interrupted by death but he comes to give in the present, abundant life. Life that satisfies. Life with a capital L. Life with uh, absolute, eternal significance. Life that is renewed daily by the Holy Spirit. Life that enlivens all of our hearts and enlightens our mind. Life that never ceases. Jesus is the security of his sheep. And then thirdly, this chapter tells us that Jesus is the savior of his sheep. Once more he uses this solemn statement, I am the good shepherd. That's in verse 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now you see again he's contrasting himself. He's done that with wolves and thieves earlier on in the passage. Now he contrasts himself with a hired hand. Look at verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters the sheep. That's what the hired hand does. Since looking after the sheep is just a job for this hireling, they often don't do the kind of tender, loving care that the shepherd would show to his flock. Jesus talks about a wolf coming. He would warn the elders of the church at Ephesus. Paul would warn the elders of the church of Ephesus that after his departure, grievous wolves would come in among the flock of God from their own number. In order to harrow harrow the, the, the flock of God and attack the flock of God and lead them astray. Here Jesus uses that image. Paul gets his image from Jesus. There's a wolf coming. A wolf coming who's desperate to destroy the people of God. And the hired hand, who is not a true shepherd, is likely to save himself first. Flee the scene rather than run the risk of being mauled by the wolf. Jesus uses that to sharpen the contrast between his sacrificial service on behalf of the sheep and the response of others. Thieves steal the sheep. Hired hands abandon the sheep. Christ lays down his life for the sheep. Against that background he makes this claim. I am the good shepherd. The Greek word is Kalos, it means noble, authentic, preeminent above all. He is in a class of his own. He is the preeminent shepherd. He is the thoroughly good and beautiful and authentic and noble shepherd, noble of character. He is the shepherd of Israel. He is making a claim to be God. He is making a claim for deity. But he's doing this unique thing, on the one hand making this great claim to be God. I am the good shepherd. And on the other hand, he is making a claim to be capable of death. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So I read from uh, Ezekiel about David Your kind of template for a leader and a shepherd of Israel. And Messiah was to be like David. David, of course, you will know in the story of David, that he risked his life for the sheep. That is for Israel. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David risked his life for the sheep. But Jesus, he gave his life for the sheep. He gave his life. He literally lays down his life. That's a very unusual expression. It reflects the Hebrew. To hand over something, to hand over his life. He handed over his life on behalf of the sheep. Isaiah captures it. In Isaiah 53, he poured out his soul. He handed over his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Zechariah, in Zechariah 12 and 13, those two chapters, talks about a figure who is pierced and whose blood flows and the people who mourn because the shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. And that's applied in the New Testament Jesus he is struck he is wounded he is pierced his life is poured out he hands over his life he lays down his life and he lays down his life for the sheep he says look at verse 14 and 15 I am the good shepherd I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now I want you to notice this. Do you see how he describes the sheep here? Underline this in your Bible or certainly with your mind or imagination. I know my own. My own know me. In what way do they know me? They know me the way my father knows me. And I know my father. Father. So they know who Jesus is, they know him personally, they know him as their own, so he says they are his own, they know he is their own, and he says I lay down my life for the sheep. Now I said that the language that's used here is sacrificial in its nature. It's intimated already in John's gospel way back at the beginning when he points out that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. It's the same image that Jesus uses when he says in one of the other gospels in Mark that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. But you see the thing that is unique about this passage is that Jesus is emphasizing here for whom he is laying down His life. He is emphasizing here that there is a purpose. There is an intention. There is a goal. There is a plan behind his laying down his life. He's not just doing this as a great act of heroism. He's not simply doing this to make a great statement. He is doing this intentional. There is intentionality. Behind what Jesus is doing. Who are these sheep? Let me remind you. They are his sheep. He regularly calls them my sheep. He goes to the pen in the first few chapters of the uh, verses of this chapter. He goes to the sheep pen where several flocks are being held and he says, my sheep recognize my voice and they follow me. So amidst many, many sheep his sheep have a relationship with Him. He knows their name. They recognize His voice. They follow Him. He is talking about His sheep. He's just used this expression in verses 14 and 15. They are not only His sheep, they are His own. That is, they are His own possession. He knows them. They know Him. They recognize His voice. They follow Him. Him. Who are these people? Later on in chapter 17 of John's gospel, we'll find Jesus praying for his people. And as he's speaking to his father, he says to his father, I'm praying for those that you gave me. They were yours. You gave them to me and they are mine. They are mine. They are my own. They are my own possession. What is this teaching us? Well, it's teaching us something that we see captured in the name Yeshua, Jesus itself. When he was named, do you remember why he was named Yeshua? God is Savior. It was for this reason. He will save his people from their sins. So Jesus comes, you see, to lay down his life with a purpose, an express purpose. And in the text, we're being told that Jesus did not simply come to die to make salvation possible. Possible being the word underlined. He did not come to make salvation merely a possibility for people in the world. He did not come into the world to do something which would be uncertain for ever, anybody or everybody. Salvation that is potential for the world. No, he came to make salvation certain for his own, for his own sheep, for his own possession, for his people that the Father had given to him and for whom he prays in John 17 before he goes to the cross. There is an intent, there is a design, there is a purpose behind this laying down of his life. He is absolutely certain there is no doubt about the outcome. He will save his people. Those who enter by him will be saved. He is laying down his life for the sheep. There is this intentionality behind the cross. Now this is disputed even in evangelical circles. There's an Australian theologian called Broughton Knox, and uh, he has argued, for example, that the atonement, the laying down of Christ's life, is a kind of general action. Christ died to make salvation possible for all. And he places it in the context of God's general benevolence to the whole world. God loves everything and everybody. We know that that's part of God's love, of course. And he goes on to say that election, that is God's choice, only kicks in after the cross. And the reason it kicks in after the cross is, here is Jesus, he's made salvation potential for everybody, but nobody wants it. Nobody wants it. He came to his own and his own people didn't want him. Nobody wants it. So election has to kick in then if anyone is actually going to partake of the salvation that is available to everybody generally in the world. Now that's a view that's held in some evangelical circles, perhaps in many evangelical circles. But I want you to notice that that view is out of step with what John is telling us here. In fact, it's out of step with what John has already told us earlier on in this book, in chapter 6, for example. In verse 37, All that the Father Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my father. Everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Now notice, contra to that brought Knox. This passage is saying that there are people whom the father has given to the son there are people, those same people, for whom Jesus came down from heaven to do the will of God. He says about those people, not one of them will lost. I will lose none of those that you've given me. He says about those people, that they will look on the Son, and they will believe in the Son, and they will have eternal life, and He will raise them up on the last day. And that nobody can come to Him, unless the Father, not one of them can come to Him, unless the Father draws them to Jesus. There is no hint in any of that language that the Father sends the Son into the world to accomplish a kind of general possibility of salvation for anybody who particularly might want to take it. There is no escaping the language in John 6 and John 10 of purpose, design, and intention. And if you go back to John 17 that I mentioned earlier, he begins by talking about those whom the Father had given to him. He says to his Father, Father, the hour has come. That word hour is key in John's Gospel. It's the hour of the cross. It's the hour of his crucifixion. It's the hour when like a seed he'll be thrown into the ground to die and be buried and then sprout to life again in resurrection. The hour of his death That hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And it's in light of that that he says, I pray, not for the world, but for those that you have given me out of the world. For their sakes, I consecrate myself to be the sacrifice. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Jesus is praying for whom? He is praying for his people. In fact, he can, say, he can say in that same chapter, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished, finished the work you gave me to do. It's the same word, cries on the cross. Finished, accomplished, tetelestai. And he goes on to pray for them. In John Another one of John's books, Revelation chapter 5. We see Christ as the lion and the lamb, the sovereign and the sacrifice, the victor and the victim, with authority to open the seals of the book that holds the destiny of men and nations. And his authority is confirmed by the elders' song of praise. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, because you were slain And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Here are these people. They are the people he has ransomed by his blood. He has shed his blood for these people. The Lamb's sacrificial death is the focal point of what he has done to accomplish God's redemptive plan, ransoming people for God. Their salvation was first and foremost on his mind. The main purpose of his dying, the chief means by which he would bring glory to God, is by his death for his people. And what we call that in theological language is definite atonement. Definite atonement. That Jesus laid down his life to save his people from their sins. Of course, in his death, in his sacrifice, if the whole world were to be among his people, there would be no more that he would need to do. And I don't know who God's elect are. All I can say to you is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Go through the door of salvation that he is, and he is the door, and you will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. I can say that to you with authority. Why? Because Jesus has died for his people. And the hallmark of his people is when they hear his voice, when they hear the gospel, they believe. They follow him. That's the key. And so if you're worried about this matter this evening, I say to you, are you believing in Jesus? Are you following him? Are you relying on him? Then salvation is yours. You have this assurance. He gave his life for his sheep. His sheep hear his voice, they recognize the voice of the shepherd, they follow him, they believe in him, they trust in him. And it is the most amazing thing that the Lord Jesus should give his life a ransom for many people, his people there's not a few of them, there's many from every tribe and nation and language group gathered around the throne of God in heaven and all the saying is, you see, that in going to the cross Jesus had his people on his mind and in his heart John 17 is modeled on the great high priest's prayer in Leviticus and in that great high priest's prayer in Leviticus The same order that Jesus follows in his prayer that we have in John 17. The same order is followed as the priest prays for himself and his immediate colleagues. And then he prays for those who are part of the family. And then he prays for the whole people of Israel. And as the high priest prayed for himself and for his colleagues and for all Israel, Jesus prays for himself and the Apostles, and all those who will come to believe in Him through their message. He's praying for those the Father had given to Him. On the cross our Lord Jesus is both God and man. In His humanity He's enduring the pain and the scoffing and the rejection and the agony And as the son of God, he has before his eyes the faces, the names, the stories of all the people that his father has given to him. That is the most amazing, the most amazing thing. Love, so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that from before the foundation of the world, you gave a people to your son. You promised a people to your son. Thank you that he undertook to go to the cross. As a shepherd going out into the wilderness and there looking for the lost sheep and laying down his life for those that you had given to him we pray that tonight as we reflect again on Christ who is our good shepherd the savior of the sheep that we would rejoice in our own salvation and that we Lord would preach the gospel so that other sheep who have not yet heard the voice of the Master, would hear it and being of his flock would follow it and follow him and join us as part of the church of God. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.